1882, the uh, artist and architect Antoni Gaudi started work on his masterpiece, the El Templo de la Sagrada Familia, or the Church of the Holy Family in Barcelona, Spain. For Gaudi, La Sagrada Familia was the unfinished summation of his life's work. Pete Gregg tells how for several years he actually lived on the site. As the building rose skyward from its foundations, Gaudi's fame also soared. But then, in old age, he was run over by a tram, a streetcar. Because of his ragged attire and empty pockets, taxi drivers refused to pick him up thinking he was a vagrant. And he was eventually taken to a pauper's hospital. Nobody recognized the great man until his friends eventually tracked him down the next day. They tried to move him into a nicer hospital, but Gaudi refused, reportedly saying, I belong here among the poor. He died of his injuries two days later, and he was buried in the midst of his unfinished masterpiece. Some of you may have visited it. Gaudi had begun planning La Zacrada Familia in the 1880s. And he was still working on it the day he died, some 40 years later. At the time of his death, in 1926, the Basilica was between 15 and 25% complete. Other architects have continued to apply and interpret his designs. The towers and most of the church's structure are to be finished in 2026, the centennial of Gaudi's death. Decorative elements even later, by 2030 or 2032. My client, joked Gaudi on one occasion, is not in a hurry. My client is not in a hurry. I thought of that story earlier this week when I looked at a copy of Ria's wonderful presentation at the dinner last night and saw again some of the original video footage from the building of this church in the early 1950s. The people of Ebenezer worked on a much smaller project of course but you also built this sanctuary and all our other facilities a lot faster so if we include the education wing which was dedicated on October the 29th 1967 you've had now had this great facility in total for almost exactly 50 years but we're not celebrating that 50th anniversary today or the 60th anniversary of the dedication of the original sanctuary complex which would have been last November no this is a 90th birthday celebration not mine in case anyone is still confused by the sign outside 
but that of Ebenezer as a congregation, a covenant community of believers which began life as Erste Deutsche Baptistengemeinde of Vancouver on August the 25th, 1927. You can tell me about my German pronunciation after the service. And one of the central messages of our reading from 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning is that there is no end date for the building of God's church. You see, God is still building. God is always building. For it's as we come to Christ, the living stone, Peter reminds us in verses 4 and 5, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him that we also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through him. So when God builds his church God's focus is not on bricks and mortar, but on ordinary, everyday people like us. And if a church, any church, is to become all that God wants it to be, it needs to be clear about three main things, as I read First Peter. The first is our true identity, which is found in Christ. The second is our true calling to be his followers. The third is our true source of strength and growth in Christ himself. And there could surely be no better time to reconsider these foundational truths than a day like this, when we not only give thanks for God's work thus far, but we look to the future and we think about the exciting prospect of what God has in store in the years to come. Let's start with our true identity in Christ because having a secure sense of that can be so important. Some of you may remember the great American diver Greg Luganis who recorded an unprecedented double-double in Olympic diving when he won gold medals in the men's three-metre springboard and platform competitions in both the 1984 and 1988 Olympics. Few who saw it, as we did in England at the time, will ever forget how he fought back in 1988. In the springboard event, he missed one dive quite dramatically when he hit the board with his head. Never a good thing to do when you're diving. But physicians stitched his cut and he still went on to win. Then in the platform diving he won gold on his final performance with an incredible reverse three and a half somersault tuck. It was when reporters later hounded him in Los Angeles though that Luganis revealed part of the secret of his success. 
When they asked him what he was thinking about as he prepared for that crucial final dive, his answer was very simple. I was thinking that no matter what happens, he said, no matter what happens, my mother will still love me. He told how when he was just 11 years old, he became very frustrated at his performance in an early and important meet. It was then that Francis Luganis took a son aside and reassured him. I don't come to see you win, she said. I come to see you die. Just do your best. I will love you no matter what. Just do your best. I will love you no matter what. We may not always admit it, but we surely all long to hear those words. It's amazing what that kind of unconditional love can do. And our reading from First Peter reminds us today that that's precisely what God has for his church. First Peter was originally written to people in first century Asia Minor who were going through very tough times, including persecution at the hands of Roman authorities. And when the Apostle wrote it, I think from Rome, sometime in the 60s AD, he knew all about the kind of pressures that could bring. In fact, his letter's main purpose is to encourage his readers to stand fast, hold true in their faith, however challenging their circumstances. Peter doesn't urge his readers, he never does this, to hide or withdraw from their troubles, but to hang in there and to stay true to Christ. In the opening verses of his second chapter, he states this so clearly. And a vital part of what the Apostle Peter does is to build his readers up, to encourage them by reminding them of just how precious they are to God. So when we read verses 9 and 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2, we discover that the Apostle's words are full to overflowing with affirmation. And when we explore some of the language a little bit more closely, we find that Peter is talking about timeless truths, timeless truths that can inspire and uplift us still. So the Apostle calls Christians a chosen people. A chosen people. In other words, while it may not always seem that way, God has chosen us to be part of Christ's church. Christ has died and risen again to save us from our sins by grace through faith in him. So we belong to God in a special way. We are, Peter says, a people belonging to God. And that's a very exciting thought because it means that our sense of of security and self-confidence need no longer depend on the opinions of others or on our particular circumstances. It doesn't have to come and go like the wind according to how we feel. It can rest instead on the sure and certain knowledge that we will be with God now and forever. That God has rescued us and forgiven us for all our past mistakes. So we're in a very special relationship with God which no one can ever take away. 
I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly, incredibly encouraging. But there's even more. Because Peter also calls his readers a holy nation, a holy nation. The use of the word holy here is not meant to imply that Christians are perfect, of course. Or that we no longer make mistakes, at least this side of eternity. But the Apostle is saying, I think, that we're holy in the sense that we have been set apart. We have been dedicated to God. We have become God's own and we share even in the holiness of Christ. What is more, we're part of a wonderful community which is not a nation with physical boundaries like Canada or the US, but a special group of people all around the world. Millions, billions of us who trust in Jesus Christ. Last but not least, we're also, according to verse 9, a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Now there are many different types of priests, of course. Although I'm now senior pastor here and I'm no longer part of the Anglican Church of Canada, for example, I am still recognised as a duly ordained priest by other bodies. But while certain ministries are reserved for clergy in Anglican circles, I've often gone out of my way down through the years to stress that the New Testament understanding is that as servants of Christ, all Christians everywhere, not just those who may like to put the title reverend before their names, enjoy the full privileges of his royal priestly status themselves. So when Peter describes everyday people like his readers as a royal priesthood, or in verse 5, a holy priesthood, he's appealing to a tradition which held that all God's people are God's priests. Because we are all called to serve God and serve others. And the Apostle is stressing by the use of the word royal as well as holy that this common priesthood which we all share is actually the highest form there is. So we are a chosen people, a holy nation and a royal priesthood. That's what First Peter 2 tells us. Yet we're not given this exalted status to lord it over others. We are to be priestly servants who follow the example of Jesus the servant king. That's our true calling as Christ's followers to come to my second main point this morning. It can be dispiriting, even dangerous sometimes, to live without a sense of purpose. But sadly, so many do. In a 2016 survey, 86% of 18 to 24 year olds reported that having a purpose in life was a big part of being a real adult. The problem was that most young people didn't feel they found it. Only 43% said they had a clear picture of what they wanted in life. Only 36 that their career path aligned with their life's purpose. Only 30% knew why they were here at all. 
Not surprising, I didn't have a clue when I was that age. This study isn't good news though, concluded Professor Christine Whelan. Coasting is existing, not thriving. The majority of young adults who say they don't have a clear picture of what they want in life, she continued, also say they are existing but not thriving, while those with more purpose more often say they are thriving. In his best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Life, Pastor Rick Warren told the story of another professor, Dr. Hugh Morland, who, and I quote, once wrote to 250 of the best-known philosophers, scientists, writers, and intellectuals in the world, asking them, what is the meaning of life? He then published their responses in a book. Some offered their best guesses, Warren reported. Some admitted they just made up a purpose for life. And others were honest enough to say that they were clueless. In fact, a number of famous intellectuals asked Professor Moorhead to write back and tell them if he discovered anything. Thankfully, in the church, we need not be so clueless. Because God has given us clear purposes in his word. As you come to Christ, the living stone, Peter writes in verses 4 to 5, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And why are we gathered together for this priestly ministry so that we can offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, the Apostle states in verse 9. And what is our purpose in being so identified so that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light? Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, Peter writes in verses 11 and 12. And how are we to live with others? Live such good lives among the pagans, he continues, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And what lies at the heart of all these wonderful statements of purpose? I see three main themes. Work, worship and witness. We are to love God and love others by working for the extension of God's kingdom. By worshipping God with all that we have and are. And by witnessing to the truth of the gospel in word and deed, in such a way that others are drawn to Christ. The Ebenezer mission statement frames a key part of this so well by focusing on the common calling that we share to win and build passionate, lifelong followers of Jesus Christ. And as we look back through the decades, we can see so many examples of how the people of this church have done precisely that. It would be invidious of me, in fact, to single out 
particular people or ministries for special attention. Because there's really only one person who deserves that to come to my final point. And that is Christ himself. He is our true source of growth as a community and he figures prominently in our reading. He is the living stone, verse 4, chosen by God and precious to him, but when he was so viciously rejected by humans, he gave himself as a living sacrifice on the cross before he rose again to save us from the penalty and power of sin. It's only as we come to him in faith that we, like living stones, are being built into the wonderful spiritual house of the church. So we're able to become that holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through him. Christ is the chosen and precious cornerstone of verse 6 where Peter cites from Isaiah 28 and the one who trusts in him the one who truly comes to faith in him will never be put to shame we need never fear for the future because God forgives all our sins past, present and future when we lay them at the foot of the cross Christ is the touchstone of our faith And even though many have rejected him, as we read in verse 7, where Peter quotes Psalm 118, he has become the capstone, or the coping stone, as well as the cornerstone of the church. He may sometimes be the stone that causes people to stumble, and the rock that makes them fall, in verse 8, that people only trip over Christ when they disobey his message and when they reject his gospel of salvation. Last but not least, in verses 9 through 12, it is Christ who draws us together as God's chosen people, as God's royal priesthood, holy nation, and people belonging to God. It is Christ who equips us by the power of the Holy Spirit to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. It is Christ who makes it possible for us to become the people of God where once we were not and to receive mercy where once we could not. And it is Christ who can empower us to live such good lives that others may indeed see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So as we look back over the 90 years of Ebenezer's flourishing and fruitful life as a community, we can and I believe should see Christ at the heart and at the centre of it all. And as we look to the future, I believe that we can also see him beckoning us forward into an exciting new chapter of our lives as a community. The question, as always, is how far are we ready to follow him? And how much will we give of ourselves and our resources to answer his call? According to a report by a writer named Faye Flam a couple of years ago, the non-profit organisation Mars One had set the lofty goal of establishing a human colony on Mars 
by the year 2027. They plan to send four pioneers as a test group and then add another four volunteers every two years. These would obviously have to be highly resourceful people since they would need to serve as the the colony's chefs, farmers, doctors and engineers. But there was one other qualification that stood out above all others. The bottom line was that Mars One could promise no return flights. Since a one-way trip would take seven months and cost a small fortune, the volunteers literally needed to be willing to die on Mars. Yet despite this obstacle, Mars One had reportedly had no problem attracting highly educated people. Believe it or not, there were more than 200,000 video applications. After meticulous screening, they were soon whittled down to 1,058, then 660, and at the time of Flam's article, there were still 100 ambitious visionaries. One finalist, Leila Zucker, an emergency room physician, hoped to be as famous as Neil Armstrong, the first man to walk on the moon. We can't stay on this planet forever, she said. I would argue... Let's go now. Other applicants enthusiastically viewed the mission as a way to unite humanity for one extraordinary transcendent cause. The Mars One website, which is still there if you want to look it up, is still very open about the human implications of its enterprise. Once on Mars, it warns, there are no means to return to Earth Mars is home. A deep, grounded sense of purpose will help each astronaut maintain his or her psychological stability and focus as they work together towards a shared and better future. A shared or better future on Mars is not a prospect for which I personally would be willing to sacrifice my life. I don't know about you. But the calling of the gospel is surely a very different matter. As followers of the one who did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, we too are called to walk the way of the cross. But as we do so, we can also rest secure in the assurance that we are part of a building project that will literally last forever as we work together to extend nothing less than the kingdom of God. But God doesn't build with bricks and mortar, which can be quite literally here today and gone tomorrow. God uses the living stones of his people as we come to Christ, the ultimate living stone, the cornerstone and the capstone of his church. And the great good news, as we celebrate this wonderful 90th anniversary, is that God is still building here. God will never stop building as long as we are prepared to follow Christ's lead to share what we have and to reach out 
with the marvellous gospel of salvation. For Christ is not only our true source of growth, He is the eternal Ebenezer, the lasting rock of health on which our faith must stand as we join in God's work and build together with hope and expectation for the future. Let's bow our heads.